The Bite Goes On is up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This week, we're in Lisbon, Portugal, to sample custard tarts, cherry liqueur, and soulful fado music. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Bike Goes On. This is Brian Casey with my friend, Sandra Bernstein. Sandra, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, what's going on? Um, well, just getting through the holidays. When this airs, it'll be after the New Year, and yeah. we'll be in the midst of spring cleaning. But um, it's just been a really festive time with um, the holidays and getting my share of latkes and brisket and chopped liver. I made potato pancakes this morning. Maria is homesick, and so uh, I heard her coughing and sneezing this morning. And so when I when I um, went up and she was in the office trying to work, and I said, "Is there anything that I can possibly do for you?" And she said, "Will you make me potato pancakes?" Mm. So I made potato pancakes and. She had poached egg and bacon. and So the the latkes that we had from the other day, I missed the dinner because of the noodle spring pop-up. Oh. But um, the Gary actually got the duck fat from Koshan Valan no. to do the potato latkes in. I only got three. <laughs> so they brought me a to-go bag of chopped liver and brisket. And did, did the potato pancakes taste really different with duck fat I'm well, i didn't heat them i just ate one cold it was really good i've done that before I too. Know. <laughs> such a glutton um yeah i've had fries and duck fat but i've never thought mm. about doing potato pancakes yeah. and duck fat that's well, interesting it was, yeah that was good they i mean bad. it can't be bad yeah no <laughs> but i think i've had more sugar and more stuff more bubbles um than i need to have for the next six months yeah we you know my wife makes cookies every year fudge rocky road i didn't um, get any sugar of this cookies stuff. it all goes to the grandparents house on christmas oh. but grandma wasn't feeling well this year she wasn't feeling it she's actually just uh had surgery yesterday is on this her, grandma uh, bernie it's uh no this is uh maria's um, grandmother. Okay. And so she had hip surgery. And so they, they basically canceled Christmas. Aww. And so we had four jillion cookies <laughs> and Rocky road and fudge and all this stuff that didn't have a home. And well, maybe we should buy you a bakery. My God. At the same time, we were invaded by ants Ooh. because the, the rain came and then the ants, luckily uncle David is a pest exterminator. So he's been over several times to try and care. But what it did is it sort of forced the sweets out of the home because we needed to get rid of them because it was just bringing these little critters in. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, I have OD'd on sugar myself and mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm looking forward to January 1st to start a new life. Yeah. So um, before I introduce our guest, yeah. I, you know, I was thinking about that. We have a lot of pop-ups coming up in January, including our fried right. chicken Fridays right? and oh, our, and that, our yeah. bike goes on guest returns, our second helpings. Can, can you just elaborate a little bit on the fried chicken? Cause I saw the, I saw the post for it. So you cannot eat at Sweet D. It's only to yeah, come pick it up. Is that to, what it is? I'm pretty sure. It's going to be you pay for it in advance yeah. and you have two options um, and you take it and you, take it home. And you can either just take the chicken or you can take the coleslaw, the biscuits, right. you have the to honey butter. You decide ahead of time. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. And, you know, we would have loved to do the pop-up except for people, we didn't get a good turnout. So okay. I think people can set their time when they want to come get it and we'll see how it goes before we commit to February or March. And when you do these pop-ups, do you see a lot of the same people? I think this one's going to be a little bit different, but the Sunday suppers, yes. Okay. Yeah. And then at ramen, you know, I saw some of the usual suspects yes. at ramen the other yes. night. So I stopped by on yeah, my break. They, and there's a lot of regulars. Yeah. Oh, at the pop-up. Yeah. yeah. But so anyway, this is not what I was going to tell you. Oh. I was going to say, <laughs> so I sent an email blast out to our list and yeah. I wrote on the top um, something like... Um, Forget your no fat, no fun, no chocolate, no sugar, no, <laughs> no push up, you know, forget all that because we have Coco Van and we've got chocolate and we've got fried chicken and, you know, and then I wrote on the bottom, just kidding, everything in moderation. And I got a really horrible email from someone like Ooh, saying I shouldn't <laughs> ridicule people's dietary issues and I'm like oh my god it's just a, a joke about new year's resolutions gotta be careful these days I know I mean <laughs> I, if I thought I was gonna hurt someone's feelings I would have never done it but yeah. it's like come on yeah you know but that's all that's all homemade food though I think w what people need to cut out is anything that comes in a box right anything that's loaded with sugar right we're not talking anything about that that's kind of processed stuff. yeah this is a yeah, different not thing the girl and the figs really no, delicious. No, you can fried eat chicken. that stuff and still live In a healthy moderation. life. Don't eat out of a box. Right. All right. Well, <laughs> speaking of which, or eat in a restaurant. And that goes right perfect. into a perfect segue um, to introduce Steve Zimmerman from Restaurant Realty Co. Company. Company. Correct. Okay. Correct. Welcome. Thank nice you. to see you. Nice to be here. Yeah, um, Steve and I um, have known each other for a, a good amount of time. Mm -hmm. It's been a lot of years, at least eight, 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 ten, ten years. years yeah. Like yeah, and um, I can't say I've done a complete transaction with you, but you've been very helpful over the years. That's right. And I feel like for sure you are the preeminent. You are the person that sells restaurants. We have a, some small business brokers in town. Um, Tom Barnett. RIP yes. um, was our broker. I don't know how, it's just how it ended up in 1997. And he passed, I think, his company on to some of the people that were working with him. But um, he was totally different, totally different kind of broker. I mean, small town, I don't know what else he sold. But um, anyway, how did you get into this business? Very good question. Um, I was in the restaurant business. Um, my father started a uh, uh, in the restaurant business in 1948. Wow. He opened his first restaurant, and it was called Zim's. Um, and we specialized in quality hamburgers. Uh, when when he he got the idea of this, he actually he was when he graduated from high school. He he college was not on his radar. He. He came from a working family. Uh, they were immigrants. My grandparents. He was. They came from Poland, and my grandfather was a painting contractor. So my father thought a logical business for him to go into after he got out of high school was to open up a paint store, because oh. he knew the paint business from my his father, and he he had a situation where he had a short term lease, and so. Uh, his downside was if the inventory didn't sell, he sold paintbrushes, paints, 
all kinds of paint sundries, ladders, tarps, mm -hmm. and, and he mixed paints as well. And so he opened this little store on the corner of Lombard and Steiner in San Francisco. Wow. It's a little, you know, small little store. And uh, he, he ran it for a number of years. Then he got drafted into World War II. And uh, one of the first things that he, he had done when he was drafted was he had a, 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 um, a color blind test uh, as part of his physical. And they found out that he was colorblind. <laughs> and uh, and he was mixing paints for, wow. for customers for, for, for many years, and it was, that was rather a unique uh, experience. So anyway, he went. He, he was in World War II. His his youngest brother, uh, my uncle, took over the paint store while he was in the service. At, when he came back, he took over the paint store. And next to the paint store, there was a thousand square foot space. Mm -hmm. And the story he tells that was on our menu was that he got this idea. Uh, talking to his fellow soldiers when they were eating K rations overseas, they couldn't wait to get back to the States to eat a juicy hamburger and a thick milkshake. Mm. And that supposedly planted the idea of opening up a specialty restaurant. So next door to the paint store, um, he opened up this little 22 seat counter uh, and specialized in quality hamburgers. He bought the USDA choice Chuck. Wow. He trimmed it, he ground, he trimmed it. At, at the store, uh, made patties by hand, you know, double ground the meat, made it by hand. So Flat top or a grill? Uh, it was a specially designed open grate charbroiler. Wow. Because he didn't want the, uh, with the flame coming above, because he didn't want the, the hamburger to be cooking in its fat. He, so he, huh. he had the special, and he had a special bun warmer on top of the ch uh, charbroiler. Uh, it wasn't a charbroiler, it was just a broiler. And, and then he, 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 he knew this guy named Stanley Langendorf, who owned a bakery called Langendorf's, and mm. he had a special made apple pie uh, by mm. the bakery. So all he served on his menu was quality hamburgers. Um, in fact, he didn't introduce French fries in his restaurant for 20 years after wow. he opened because they hadn't perfected the quality of oils that yeah. they have today. And in, in the old days, if you go, if you went into a, you know a, a restaurant that, that served French fries, you would smell the the grease, right? And it was very it was disconcerting and not keeping mm -hmm. with the quality image you want. So all he had on his menu was the hamburger called a Zimburger. If you had it with cheese, Zimburger. without cheese, it do was, you remember this? No, the Zim's that I used to go to was in Marin, right off the freeway oh, in Greenbrae, right in Greenbrae, yes. Yeah. And so, in any case, he had this. Mm -hmm. He had this specially designed apple pie, and so he trained his food servers so that they didn't ask the, the customer if they wanted dessert. They asked them, do you, how do you want your apple pie? Do you want it with with, yeah. with uh, vanilla ice cream? He did with cinnamon sauce and vanilla ice cream or melted wow. cheddar cheese. That's that awesome. Was the, that was the Jedi mind trick. <laughs> and then so did anybody say no, no apple very pie? Few, very yeah. few people because that's all they had. Was, right. you know, it, was just, it was like a, a pear. You, know, uh -huh. you had the hamburger, you had the apple pie. And all he had was milkshakes, coffee, and you know soft drinks. Mm -hmm. And that was it. That was his menu for the first... 10 years or more. Well, that's pretty close to West Handmade Burgers. I, 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 and you. I know. Do something and do it well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and sometimes you make it and sometimes you don't. Well, let's let's remember the three most important words in real location, estate. Location, location, <laughs> location. Is you. that really true? <laughs> 
It's very helpful. Okay. <laughs> it's very helpful, but it's not necessarily a deal breaker. Yeah, I, that's what I yeah, think. I mean, if yeah. it's a planned dining restaurant right. where people will drive to the French Laundry in Yonville, right. which is not exactly in the middle of you know no, that's the Bay true. Area, yeah. you know, if it's really exceptional, yeah. people you know we'll come go. cross country yeah. to go to a unique place like that. But you know, if it's an impulse-oriented concept, mm -hmm. obviously location is extremely yeah. important. Yeah, for sure. So in any event, Dad opened up a number mm -hmm. of restaurants. Uh, All Zims? No, we had. Uh, I think a total of 20 Zims in our career. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And we had a total of 37 restaurants. We had some 50 style drive-ins, a couple of drive-ins, one in Redwood City, one in San Mateo. We had a couple of Mexican restaurants. Uh, we had a couple of other types of restaurants. What, uh, will you explain, sorry, will yeah. you explain drive-ins for people yeah, that don't drive know what that means? Especially for millennials. Yeah. <laughs> drive-in is where you, uh, you can actually eat inside the restaurant or you can be served in your car where a car hop will come up. You, 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 you drive up to a speaker uh, that's mounted uh, on a stand in the parking lot. You give your order on, to, on the stand and then a... A, a food server comes out either with roller skates or right. out, without <laughs> and 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 serves you the the food they put a tray on the on the on the ledge of the window and and you eat in the car yeah. and this was this was fashionable for many years i guess yeah. there aren't too many of these places around now i don't know any. you know it was a sort of a throwback i think sonic in Petaluma oh, mm -hmm. tried to do that yes. um, on the boulevard and I don't know if they're even still in business but but I remember as a kid doing that at A&W yeah. uh, right. in Petaluma right. you could yeah. just pull right into your little stall and and as kids you love it yeah mm -hmm. yeah so I got entrenched I started working in the restaurants when I was 15 okay. wa washing dishes mm -hmm. and my father said uh, you know before I started working in the restaurants uh, well the way the way it I, I was introduced to me is before I could work in the restaurants he wanted me to appreciate washing dishes and cleaning toilets. Yeah. Of course. So, so fortunately, my my cousin um, owned a gas station, and uh, I, I was 13 years old. I I was in the Boy Scouts. I wanted to go to Jamboree, which was like an international mm -hmm. camping event. It was it was in Colorado, Colorado Springs, and uh, so I said, Dad, you know, I'd like to go to this event. You know, would you pay for it? And he said, Well, you know, I think it'd be a good idea if you earn the money yourself. So I said, Well, where am I going to get a job? I'm 13 says, well, your cousin has a gas station. Why don't you go see him? And so I worked for Cousin David for two years, working on weekends and during the summers, pumping gas and cleaning lube rooms. Now, is this in California? San Francisco. In San Francisco. In San Francisco, okay. yeah. And so I was raised, born, in San, born and raised in San Francisco. So I started working in the gas stations on weekends and, and, and during the summers, part-time. I went to camp as well, Boy Scout camp. And, uh, you know, it was cold, undesirable work, you know, cleaning lubricants, <laughs> putting sawdust down with, with uh, some lubricant, I think kerosene, and then mm -hmm. cleaning up all the grease off. Okay. So I really did, when I, on my 15th birthday, actually on my birthday, I got to start working in the restaurant. And I started working at our restaurant at 10th and Market Street and uh, washed dishes for couple years. Do you have bro brothers and sisters? I have two sisters, yes. Did uh, they go into the business too? Uh, not really. Okay. No, not they really. They got married. Well, no, one unfortunately oh, ceased. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. And the other one, um, very peripherally. I mean, she hosts uh, maybe a, on a couple of occasions mm -hmm. when we opened a new restaurant, but not really ongoing type of mm -hmm. thing. So I was the only... So you were the I one. Only, I was the family you member. You were the heir. Yeah. <laughs> so I, then I, after about a year of dishwashing, I started cooking. And I actually became a very good fry cook. And um, 
And then uh, I, it was time to go to college. So I uh, initially went to junior college for about a year and a half because I wasn't that great of a student initially. Uh, but I always wanted to go to Cornell University Hotel School. Yeah. And, and there was no way in hell I was going to get into Cornell University <laughs> with you know, a B, B average in high school. So, uh, so I, went, I ended up going to junior college, year and a half. Then I, I took a summer school course at, at University of San Francisco in accounting. I liked the program, so I transferred to University of San Francisco. I was there about one semester. And then because I was in a vulnerable age group to get drafted uh, to Vietnam War, I thought, mm, I don't particularly want to go to Vietnam, so I think I better join the reserves. So I joined the Air Force Reserves, and I was in the Air Force. Uh, I, I just joined the reserves, which is basically the normal reserve program is you go to reserve meetings once a month for six years, and then during the summer you have to go to reserve training mm -hmm. for one or two weeks. Do they still have that? I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm really not sure. So anyway, after being in the reserves, I went to boot camp. I went to Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. Went to boot camp. Then I was a, I was a reservist, going to monthly meetings. And then boom, the USS Pueblo, which was an intelligence ship, was seized by the North Koreans. President Johnson basically activated 100,000 uh, air transport units uh, people personnel. I was in an air transport unit land uh, headquartered in Hamilton Air Force Base, which is now a defunct base. Uh, in Nevada, yeah. uh, in Marin. That's so, where I was born. Oh, you were born? Yeah. In Hamilton yeah. Air Force Base? That's correct. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, my father was in the military, and so it was. I think it was $5 for me to... To, to pop uh, out for my mom to have me. Oh, really? So oh. I tell people I was airborne. Oh, okay. <laughs> you were airborne. <laughs> so that's as funny. <laughs> really, that's interesting. Yeah, I tell people, they ask, well, what do you do in the military? I said, well, I used to fly. I was a flyer. Is that what do you fly? I flew pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, love it. <laughs> Which is true. So, so it was really interesting. Uh, we were activated. Uh, a lot of our unit was unfortunately went to Vietnam and Korea, but fortunately they needed people to serve the our our units. You know, airmen coming mm -hmm. in and out, and so we fed about 500. We had a especially uh, especially designated dining room for our unit. We we fed about five to six hundred airmen a day, mm -hmm. and so uh, most of the, my fellow reservists were attorneys, accountants, didn't know anything about food service, and mm -hmm. here I you know had some experience cooking at Zim's, and so I had an opportunity to basically sort of take the lead and sort of run the kitchen, um, and that was an interesting experience, you know, having to do you know mass volume feeding, you mm -hmm. know, with a very diversified menu, you know, yeah. basically outlined by the government. And uh, and actually, oh, did they have an actual program of how you fed? Oh yeah, they had they had a standard operator procedure manual. With, uh -huh. uh, yeah, you didn't course. get to decide you're going to do meatloaf no, or whatever. Did, did not. <laughs> okay, that was all spelled out very and succinctly. Did you get all the food in like huge tin cans and that? I mean, I think it's probably before the big bags of food. There yeah. was a lot of tin cans, a lot of batch. Batch deliveries, yeah. yeah, deliveries. Yeah. I, I know when we did turkeys, you know, we used to cook like 15, 20 turkeys at a time, right. you know, whole turkeys, right. which was really and So unique. it was a huge kitchen. It was a good, very good sized kitchen, uh -huh. yes. And, and for, was it there or did you have to design it? Oh, no, no, the kitchen was there. The kitchen was yeah, already every, there. The dining room and the mm -hmm. kitchen, the whole facility was there. Mm -hmm. And so um, it, and basically we, we fed uh, just the breakfast and lunch mm -hmm. meals. And so we had to be there every morning at 5 a.m., but we got finished by one, one thirty or so. So we had some semblance of, you know, civilian life because, you know, I was living in San Francisco and did the five to, you know, one thirty deal. I was taking. And then you got to go home. 
Yeah. Oh. Yeah. We did. Yeah. We got the gums. And uh-huh. yeah. So, uh, and, uh, so I was taking some, some evening courses, um, while I was for this two year period, it was a two year period. And then I had temporary, um, AP duty, which mean I was an air policeman for 90 days, which mm-hmm. is an interesting experience walking around airplanes, uh, wow. uh, you know, and you work three days, days, three days, swings, three days, mids, and then you got four days off walking around airplanes, guarding jets to make sure, you know, you felt a little useless, you know, doing that in the middle, right. of, middle of Marin <laughs> County, you know, that wasn't exactly right. the center of a war zone. No. Make sure no one's putting bombs on them. Exactly. So anyway, I finished my two-year stint there. Then I went back to USF um, for another year, graduated, uh, took six months off, and I went to Israel and worked on a kibbutz. And my goal was to work on a kibbutz for about six months. And I was basically uh, doing agricultural work, doing some fishing, uh, picking a lot of bananas and other kinds of fruits. What what city were you in? I was in uh, Ginosar, which is on the Galilee. I was a kavutz called um, uh, Ginosar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in the, in the Galilee area. And uh, what happened was I was there for about a month and a half, and I met this Austrian fellow. And he said to me, he said, hey, you know, you should really get out and see the world. You know, you're a young guy, you know. And I said, well, how do I do this? And he says, well, you hitchhike through Europe. I says, well, how do you do that? He says, With well, your you, thumbs. <laughs> he says, you go to a youth hostel, you put a note on the bulletin board, and you, you, you basically advertise that you want an attractive lady to hitchhike with, uh, you know, to use as bait, I guess, you know, to, to be, oh a, to, to be attracted you uh-huh. know, to, to a drive these right. drivers. Yeah. And so I, so anyway, you know, at that time, uh, I guess, you know, you could do that. So and anyway, so I, <laughs> right. took, I took a boat to Petraeus, uh, Greece, the southern part of Greece, oh, went nice. and, and made my way up to Athens, stayed at a mm. youth hostel, and then put this note on the bulletin board. And lo and behold, a young lady came forward, and we hitchhiked through about five or six countries going north. And then when we got up north, we I did the same thing, and because she was going to stay there or whatever, and found another lady to help hitchhike back. And, okay, and now, it worked. It was strictly, uh, strictly a billboard. I got a few questions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're never going to get to the restaurant no, selling yeah, no, part of I this. I want to know, okay. first, a kibbutz. I need to know what that is. Yeah, kibbutz is a, it's a form of totalitarianism. It's, it's where people live together, they cohabitate, and they, they eat together, and they work, and they get educated, uh, and it's like a, a, a community to itself, uh, mm-hmm. where people basically, you know, they, they, they work together for the communal, for the, for the interests of the whole uh, community. And they, and, so like a and, commune. It is a commune, okay. like a commune, yes. Okay. And uh, they're still around, and... Um, and interestingly enough, I'm I'm very active in an organization called Hebrew Free Loan Association in San Francisco. We just we just financed a um, a what's called a moshav, which is sort of like a cohabitating working situation. Mm-hmm. And um, we just uh, basically um, arranged a four million dollar loan to buy a piece of property in Berkeley, where they're going to develop this this same sort of concept. People live wow. together. They they live. And they, their whole lives evolve around this co, you know, habitation living situation. Well, but do you have to commit for a certain amount of time, or you can come and go as you want? You know, 
most people either live in the kibbutz, they're born in the kibbutz, and they live there the, their whole life, or they get to a point where after they're educated, they get through their high school years of education, they decide, mm, I don't like this community, mm-hmm. this communal way of living, and go live, you know, independently. And usually their parents or, you know, prior generations will continue living there. But so uh, I don't know what the retention rate is, you know, on commune, on, right. on, on kibbutzim. I know they're still very prominent in, in Israel. And, interesting. Yeah. And it's an interesting concept. So anyway, I got back to Israel uh, and met my father. He was on a fundraising uh, a group and I joined him and went on this little tour then worked at the kibbutz another month then I went back to the mainland and went to Cornell University finally mm. got to Cornell Hotel School uh, and um, actually very fortunate uh, the second or third semester there second semester I met my wife oh. uh, and uh, she was a freshman um, 18 years old and before she had a chance like two weeks after being there I met her <laughs> and you and, got her uh, took her off the market married for 46 years so yeah, that's uh, yeah, awesome. I, I was very Mazel lucky tough. that was yeah. that was my okay I have to go back here yeah. because I, yeah, I, I, know. I, I, I know. I'm curious about what was in it for the attractive girl does she also want to hitchhike but she needs sort of are you like the safety for her when you're hitchhiking and how many guys are looking for an attractive girl? Is she like have a bunch of... Are you thinking about Abby as she gets older? No, or no, no. Your I, I don't I, know if I'd recommend this uh, approach today. You know, things... I don't know what it's like for the yeah. checking world. You know, this is, this is, you know, 40 years ago. Yeah. Talking about... No, no, no. But were you, but were you like years. a bodyguard for the girl? Well, no. Or there no, was never we, any we, we based, we, issues? There was never really issues. The, the, the most... most challenging issue we had was that uh, that we got stuck in the swiss alps in the middle of the of the winter because we hitchhiked Yikes. in the winter the, the 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 driver spoke italian and we couldn't communicate with him and and so we got picked up in rome and got dropped off uh in in the swiss alps and it, it, you know no in, the, in the middle of the winter we were about a mile away from 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 a railroad station oh. so we caught a railroad to i don't remember where exactly <laughs> oh yeah but it, it sounds but so there was fun never, though yeah, doesn't yeah, it at that time it was a very acceptable uh-huh. practice to do that kind of thing uh-huh. today in today's world i i doubt if you would use well, that different approach. the kid well they take the gap years and you know to well, go they with go the take backpack. trains they, they take trains, yeah, trains yeah. and that, yeah yeah well, we took a lot of trains as well yeah, yeah. i don't think people are hitchhiking yeah. as much they're right. ubering yeah. <laughs> no i just had this image of of you know her with her thumb out and you sort of hiding behind the uh, a garbage can or something and then when the car stops you sort of just jump in the back no, we seat. didn't have to be that okay <laughs> that uh Okay, I'm sorry. No problem. No problem. <laughs> so anyway, after after finishing Cornell, um, I came back into the family business. I started working as a manager trainee. How old were you around? Uh, I think I was. Let's see. I was I got married when I was. I was. I guess around 23, 24. Oh wow! You're still so young. Yeah. So I started working in the restaurants um, full time. Um, I basically uh, opened uh, new restaurants. Uh, eventually became a manager. And uh, these are your family's new restaurants? Exactly, right? family's restaurants. And I probably opened 10 new restaurants mm-hmm. from scratch. Um, and uh, then I became a, after a manager, I became a regional supervisor. And then I became a vice president and executive vice president and president and chief operating officer and chief executive officer. And so my, my primary responsibilities were 
um, hiring new management, um, basically negotiating leases. Uh, we were union operations wow. in San Francisco. Yeah. And uh, so I negotiated um, union contracts with the association. Local too. Um, I was also involved in, in, in food development, research and development, because mm. I had spent a number of years in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, certainly not a gourmet cook, but I understood you know coffee shop cooking pretty well. And, and over the years, I should add that our menus expanded because we... We, we started opening up in hotels, and hotels wanted breakfast, and they wanted 24 hours, and so mm-hmm. we ended up having a lot of 24-hour restaurants serving breakfast, lunch, and then over the years, from being a specialty hamburger restaurant, our menu expanded just because of the demands of where we were, yeah. we were locating. And um, so I was in the restaurant scene for uh, 20 years, and basically what happened was uh, McDonald's opened up their first restaurant in 1965. At one time, uh, San Francisco was predominantly a union restaurant city. Uh, and when I say that, maybe at the peak, there were maybe seven, 800 restaurants out of 4,000 that were union. So it was still relatively mm-hmm. in the minority, but nonetheless. And, and Dad had decided initially to get involved with the union because at that time, unions were friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he thought he'd have an, e- an automatic uh, personnel department with qualified loyal people to pull from and give him a vehicle to expand. And that did work well for a number of years. But then when McDonald's opened in 65, that sort of became the beginning of the end of the unions uh, in San Francisco for independent freestanding restaurants. So what happened was because we had 12 restaurants in San Francisco at that time, and we were the largest independent chain, uh, it just we couldn't just roll over and say, you know, Mr. Union, we're going away. So it, technically what you have to do is you have to decertify. So what happened was, you know, we tried to do that. Well, initially we negotiated an independent contract away from the association. There was an association-wide negotiating group that represented all the restaurants that were in the union. We broke away from that group because we felt our needs were different because we were a chain. We had, you know, mm-hmm. 24-hour stores, not 24-hour stores, blah, blah. So we, we ultimately had an independent contract and um, we, so our contract ended and so I was negotiating, you know, with the union, and basically we could not come to an agreement. And so uh, ultimately we had a strike, and uh, consequently I had to hire replacements, management replacements, employee wow. replacements. And it was very sad because we had a lot of tenured employees, no. people that owned this for 30 years, 35 <clears throat> years, mm-hmm. you know, and they were walking the picket lines. And needless to say, customers were not very sympathetic so mm-hmm. we were on strike for almost uh, 70 days wow and it cost us you know cost us it's hard to quantify the intangible cost but you know the tangible cost was far in excess of a million dollars so it basically and and the only reason we took the strike and we, it was because we needed more flexibility because our our labor costs were a third higher than our competitors. If mm-hmm. it was an even playing field and everybody was paying the same right. wages, we wouldn't mind. But mm-hmm. because our wages are independent costs, you know, health and welfare, mm-hmm. premium shifts, you know, et cetera, requirements um, were such that we we had to maintain price value in order to, to be, you know, in order to exist. So uh, we lost when we lost the strike, I pretty much decided at that time I was going to phase out of the restaurant business and 
fortunately, when I got out of college, I, I got involved in real estate because my, that was my father's MO. When he opened up his first restaurant when he was 22, he bought an apartment building mm. in the Marina District and mm. you know, with a lot of leverage. He didn't have a lot of money. He had, I think, with five loans on the building. And so he, 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 and over the years, he, he bought various pieces of commercial real estate. And so he encouraged me to do the same. So I, I started buying initially, you know, duplex, fourplex, and larger apartment buildings. Then I started bringing groups together. And actually, when I, I left the restaurant business after the strike, I basically um, put my chief operating, my, my, excuse me, my chief financial officer, who also had operational experience, uh, to replace me. And I basically exited the business, and I did basically um, syndicating real estate. Uh, for about seven, eight year period. Was your dad okay with that? He was okay with that because uh, he he could see that, you know, after we lost the strike, you know, we had all this debt that at best we were going to just be basically treading water. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't see any real growth in the horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we but just did had, he keep the restaurants? What, what happened was we, we basically, after the strike, we had nine restaurants remaining. Mm-hmm. And um, I basically negotiated giving back some of the, the restaurants to landlords where mm-hmm. we had some below market leases mm-hmm. and they were happy to take them back. Others I sold, I got it down to three mm-hmm. restaurants. Mm-hmm. And so after my stint in the, in the syndicating business, um, I, I ran into some hurdles there and consequently uh, it didn't work bottom line. <laughs> I had to come back in the restaurant mm-hmm. scene. John who succeeded me, had enough with all this trying to Mm -hmm. do with all this past debt that we had had basically accumulated so i basically put the company in chapter 11 and did a workout with the bankruptcy court to pay Mm -hmm. off all these back taxes that we Mm -hmm. owed as a result of the the strike and uh so after we did the got the plan of reorganization approved i came to the conclusion that "Mm, we're not going to be able to pay it off so i basically figured out a way how to phase out of the business and we ended mm-hmm. ended ultimately closing three restaurants in mm-hmm. October uh, remaining three in October 1995 mm-hmm. and knowing about a year ahead of time that this was probably going to happen I thought mm, I've got three kids you know they're 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 you know they're growing up they're going to eventually mm-hmm. have to go college. to college and <laughs> etc so I got to figure out how to make a living mm-hmm. so I decided you know I've had a, a good amount of commercial real estate experience I've had a good amount of restaurant experience why not tie the two together and do restaurant real estate mm-hmm. and so um, at 47 years old, uh, to do the ramp up because in realizing to do business brokerage that you, you you're not going to just start making money. It, it's commission mm-hmm. only, and it's going to take six months a year before you make dollar one. Mm-hmm. So I decided to learn business brokerage. Um, I should work for a company, a reputable company. So I worked for a company in the Bay area, uh, learned the basics of business brokerage, um, and at that same time, while I was ramping up, I was actually working as a waiter at Tony Roma's I ah. in Danville because mm-hmm. I was working in Pleasant Pleasant Hill, mm-hmm. and um, um, and I was also monitoring the last three Zims, which closed in October of '95. I started working in business brokerage in nineteen in January nineteen ninety five. So after a year in the in in working for this company, and I was only my focus was going to be restaurants only restaurants bars clubs mm-hmm. and because that was my background i thought to be successful you have to be a specialist so after one year in this company i decided um i'm going to develop my own company 
So I started a restaurant realty company in January 1996. Uh, I, had, I was a one wow. person one person office, and I was working 80, 90 hours a week. You know, basically wow. doing the whole thing, mm -hmm. finding sellers, finding buyers, putting together deals, and so uh, I think I probably did I don't know hundreds of deals before I actually hired my first you know wow. associate. And that was that was. 2003, I had a, a bout with cancer, uh, kidney cancer, mm -hmm. and so I, I, I was a one-man show, and so I had to hire a temp, you know, just to get, so I, to, I got out of the hospital to mm -hmm. monitor the calls, and fortunately, it was a successful procedure, and I was up and running in a week or two, but that gave me the, the inkling that mm, I, I need an assistant. So I had my first assistant, and then from there, I grew, and um, so we have close to 30 people working with us now wow. and, and we do transactions throughout the state we've yeah. done over 1200 uh, trans transactions restaurants bars clubs and related commercial buildings and i'm i'm also a restaurant landlord so i understand the <laughs> landlord side of the business i'm also in the hotel business i'm a partner in a hotel and so i'm still have my hands in an operating business but we have a management company running the, that business for us and involved in various other commercial properties so um, and it's the enjoyable thing about this business are the people, obviously mm -hmm. very diversified people, a lot of crazies like myself <laughs> that I can relate to. And every day is a is journey, a very yeah. interesting journey. You mm -hmm. just don't know who you're going to be talking to, what the situation's going to be, you know, a whole myriad of different ethnicities that all have their own shtick and negotiating. And it's a lot of fun and I really enjoy it. And, uh, hope uh you know i can stay do it do this for the rest of my life you know no, retirement not, is not right? on, it's not on my radar you know and uh I, I really love what i do now i'm curious because the restaurant industry is um challenging i mean uh, sandra i guess i can ask you this i don't know what the percentage of the of restaurants that fail but did you find yourself selling restaurants to people and then all of a sudden you're turning that restaurant over several times over the next 10 15 years yeah, that's a good question yeah we we have i my sweet spot in in selling restaurants are independent non-franchise non-chain we deal with small chains maybe two three units in fact this past year we sold three chains small chains smaller scale chains one was a three unit sushi restaurant and San Francisco and Oakland. One was a two-unit breakfast lunch business in Silicon Valley, and was a three-unit uh, fast food Indian restaurant in downtown Los Angeles. But generally speaking, we sell independent, non-franchise, uh, uh, non-chains. And so, landlords are freaked, you know, in dealing with restaurant these kind of tenants because they know the failure rate is usually around fifty percent the first three years, eighty percent the first five years, and so the criteria for when we screen a prospective buyer, since most of our deals are confidential because you know they're existing restaurants and in order to keep employees, obviously owners don't want their employees to know it's for sale. They don't want their customers or their vendors to know it's for sale. So it's, it's done on a confidential basis. And um, so we, we basically screen the buyer, not so much that they can, they can get their head together with the seller on the price, we screen them primarily so they can get to first base with the landlord because landlords are freaked dealing with high risk tenants like mm -hmm. independent restaurants because they know the failure rate history. So the criteria is for someone that wants to buy an independent non-franchised restaurant is they have to have at least three to five years ownership experience or management of experience of a similar type restaurant that they're buying. Mm -hmm. They have to have you know significant cash I and mean, enough 
more to buy the place, but to have enough working capital uh, and other costs reserves because things go wrong. You know, fr you know, frequently they think they look at their three pro formas projections. You know, best case, worst case, and you know, optimum case. And we always say err somewhere between the conservative and the worst case mm -hmm. uh, to be conservative because things do go wrong. Uh, you know, acts of God, you know, new direct head-on competitor opening across the street, whatever. So um, basically, it, very high risk. So, um, you know, we have to do our due diligence, make sure they have enough cash, they have the experience, they have good credit. And before, you know, we will tell them the name and address of a, a particular restaurant opportunity. Hmm. Have you ever and, had and, and, a lawsuit with someone that broke their confidentiality? We've never had a lawsuit, but we've 86 and probably okay. at least a dozen different uh -huh. buyers over the years that mm -hmm. have breached, and uh, and as such, they don't get the first base with right. us. Right, right. Uh, yeah, know that and they're not going to be. There good. is a certain vulnerability that there will be some breach, but we, we have a pretty good record of keeping it confidential mm -hmm. to such time as you post the notice, ABC right. notice, that there's going to be a change. Yeah, you can't really yeah. get away no. after that. And then you position it in such a way so that it's 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 presented on a positive basis. You know, mm -hmm. the owner meets with the with the buyer and the employees and basically says, you know, I'm bringing in. Uh, this new this new individual is going to be taking over. He plans mm -hmm. to continue running the operation as is. We'll make some operational changes perhaps in the future. You mm -hmm. know, and we try to present it as a positive situation to minimize you know mm -hmm. the people leaving. You know, employees leaving. And so, um, I don't. Did that answer your question? Yeah, and and I'm also curious. You know, on your on your website, I saw Tommy's joint uh, mm -hmm. picture of Tommy's joint. Is that some place that you? have sold or yes uh in 2015 um it was owned by the same family for about 75 years yeah. and we sold the building and the business and that i'm it's interesting you brought that up because that's only one of six freestanding union restaurants in san francisco wow. there are only six now wow yeah. that's incredible it is incredible yeah and the reason that sold and we had a number of buyers into that because of the real estate it would have been much huh. more difficult to have sold if it was just a rest, you know, a union restaurant. And right. we've had a couple other union restaurant listings the, uh, since then without the real estate, and we haven't been able to sell them. People just don't hmm. be interested in taking on a union, you know, situation. Well, how yeah. how do you go about deciding how much a restaurant should be worth? Okay. Like, well, actually, let me go back. So, yeah. you know, I. In my mind, I think people have an idea in their head about what they want to do. It, oh, it would be great. My, you know, mom made the best Swedish pancakes or whatever it was, but they have a dream. They want to do it. I feel, and I could be way off base, that more people have an idea of what they want to do rather than, oh, this would be a good business without any food or hospitality experience at all. Is that true? Like most people know the business a little bit. Well, again, you know, the criteria for most most landlords, certainly mm -hmm. in, in, the, in Northern California, unless you get to a remote area where the, mm -hmm. the landlord will just take, just the pulse, uh, take the pulse to get a tenant <laughs> right. in, into, the, into uh -huh. the premises. But if it's in, in, a, in a, a different area other than that, uh, they're looking for someone so with experience. So you have to have experience. Yes, exactly. Right. But to answer your question more succinctly, um, is that you know there are two basic methods of valuation. Mm -hmm. One is if we're selling the the business with its name, 
menu, all of the proprietary items, um, and IT, you know, uh, stuff, websites, email addresses, etc. So basically, like buying, turning over yeah, the same business, exactly. Yeah, buying an buying existing an, a, successful and running, business. just running it, like the Tommy's mm-hmm. joint that you brought mm-hmm. up, for example. Uh, he, the only thing he did change was he, it was an all cash business before he he made, he introduced. Uh, I think credit cards in there. He mm-hmm. thought he could expand the business by doing that, um, but he basically kept the concept the same. Didn't change the menu to any great extent. The personnel uh, just ran it as is. You know, upgraded the decor a little bit, but left the the same feeling intact. Uh, so that that's one one method. And the valuation method for that is usually it's a multiple of what we call seller's discretionary earnings which is the net income, and then you add back to the net income all the benefits that the owner gets out of the business, like food for home, uh, maybe a salary, um, you know, medical insurance, car expense, you know, R&D, and then usually add back depreciation, you add back amortization and interest because you're selling it on an all-cash basis. Most of these restaurants sell for all-cash because it's because the risk factor is so high, most sellers don't want to carry back a loan. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, they're sold for all cash most of the time. Occasionally, uh, a person will get a, a small business administration loan mm-hmm. where they can finance up to 80% of the purchase price if the, the business has had three years of profitability on a tax return. Uh, then in that case, you know, there's a, there's a, there's quite a few SBA lenders out there that, that are anxious to do these kind of loans because they're, they're guaranteed by the government. 75% of the principal is guaranteed mm-hmm. by the government. So that, that that's one method. It's go, what we call a going concern where we're selling the name, menu, and all the proprietary items. So is the multiple on the income... That like the profit that the restaurant makes yeah, the, in a year. The, well, what we use is we we look at three years. Three we do, years. We do, do a three-year weighted average. Now, anybody listening to this, I am not looking to sell my restaurants. I just want to put it out there. I am not grilling Steve for a way for me to sell. Just right. FYI. Got but it. I am curious. Yeah, got it. So so uh, so we look at the three years most recent uh, um, earnings. And we weight them. Usually we put the most weight on the current year. Mm. Uh, we put a 40% weight factor on the current year. We put a uh, 35% weight factor on the, on the next most recent year and 25% on the, the, the latest sense. year. Yeah. And But we put most emphasis, obviously, on, on the most current year because usually what you're doing now is most indicative of what's going to happen in the future. But as mm-hmm. we know, there are a lot of things that happen that you can't control like right. earthquakes and fires and mm-hmm. acts of God, and et cetera, that will right. yeah, affect future earnings or a recession, uh, you know, which obviously had a big impact on most businesses. Mm-hmm. So that's the going concern method. If it, if somebody's buying the business as is, and I, if I had to guesstimate in terms of what percent of sales we do that are going concern sales versus what we call assets in place, transactions where the business is is marginally profitable or losing money um, and basically the buyer is looking at it to he has a better mousetrap in mind he's he's going to change the menu change the name put a spin on it maybe make some decor changes and give it a whole different mm-hmm. image um, I, I would say it's probably close to 50 50. wow and, and interesting it, and it will vary from agent to agent in my company i have mm-hmm. one agent in the sacramento area most everything he sells are going concern businesses mm-hmm. uh, 
personally, I'd say my mix of sales is probably 50-50 or something like that. I haven't really sat mm -hmm. down and formally quantified it, but just guesstimating. And the company as a whole, I'd say, would fall in that 50-50. So um, a lot of the businesses we're selling um, are basically uh, asset sales, assets in mm -hmm. place transactions. And the formula for, for selling those, it, it's usually, uh, we break it down to three categories. We call a low, va low volume assets in place transaction, uh, which are businesses that are doing $500,000 or less per year. And the average sales price runs approximately 30% of yearly sales. And this is based upon our history of selling these kind of business. We have obviously hundreds and hundreds of mm -hmm. sales comps. Businesses that are, are doing between 500,000 and a million dollars in sales, we call that the, um, the middle um, assets in place uh, arena. Uh, they're selling for, pro again, approximately, and it will vary. Uh, so I'm giving just you know mm -hmm. averages, 25% right. of yearly sales. And then high volume restaurants selling, doing sales of a million dollars or more, average somewhere around 17% of yearly sales. It's brutal. Uh, because, you know, to, uh, say a restaurant typically doing a million dollars or more in sales has an investment probably minimally of half a million dollars or more. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're doing selling a, a, a restaurant that's doing a million dollars in sales and you're selling it for 17 yeah. percent and they've made an investment of 500,000, they're getting just a small percent of their mm -hmm. investment back. Mm -hmm. So it, it's brutal for these larger restaurants that are doing, you know, are not making money and have big investments and they get a very small percent of their money back. Mm -hmm. So it's very high risk. Wow. And um, to answer your question before um, that I didn't, didn't respond to was, do you sell these restaurants over and over again? Um, we, we have sold a number of restaurants, maybe two, three, four times, but it's not a, a huge amount. Uh, I would say if I had to quantify less than 10%. Do we mm -hmm. do that? Because unfortunately, a lot of the people that go out of business um, are, aren't making it. The, the landlord takes back the place and they either lease it out themselves or sometimes they'll call us to find a lessee. Uh, but in some cases, it may even be configured into some other use other than a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I'm wondering if you do you. Like what's hot right now? What areas are You're hot? So funny. That's what I was going to yeah, say. What's the tempo? Hot. Yeah. You know, what, uh, what area are people looking to get into? I would think, you know, of course, Palo Alto. Um, oh, are you talking location? Locations. I want to know locations in California that, that you see more movement than other um, places. Okay. Um, it, it's, it really, the housing is, is the big issue you know, affordable housing and restaurant employees being able to live in a given area. Yeah. So you just mentioned Palo Alto. So Palo Alto, what's happening there is, in fact, there was a situation in downtown Palo Alto where a number of retail spaces were converting into office space because restaurants were turning over because the rents were so high. Yeah. And, and getting, you know, employees was so difficult. You know, employees have to drive two hours to come from either Tracy or Gilroy or Hercules because they can't afford to live in the media trade area because right. housing is so mm -hmm. expensive. They can't afford to rent apartments or certainly buy houses. So... It, it, there was a, a, a period of time there where this conversion was going on, where they're displacing retail space, 
a lot of restaurants that went out of business. In fact, Cheesecake Factory just, by the way, went out of business at University Avenue, if you can wow. imagine that, which is hard to I, imagine. I read an article there's going to be over 7,700 restaurants that go out of business this year. In what area? The whole Bay Area? The whole country. Uh, uh, that, I mean, there's uh, probably way more than yeah, yeah. that. But gonna, I mean, well, you didn't seem phased by that number. No, I know, I know. I'm like blown away by <laughs> there's it. There's going to be a lot. So, so what happened? <laughs> was the city of Palo Alto was so concerned about you know changing the whole uh, landscape of downtown Palo Alto, making it an office complex versus yeah. retail, take away the retail flavor. They put a moratorium, and you couldn't do that. But so the bottom line is there are a lot of restaurants that are going out of business there because the rents are so high. Yeah. And, and so, although it's a hot area, sure, with Facebook and Stanford and, you know, the high demographics, et cetera, um, it's, you know, again, finding employees is the underlying issue and, uh, and high rents and coupled with those two facts. So to, to, to generalize and say, you know, areas that are hot and not, the, the whole landscape of the business is changing dramatically. You know, a lot of, a lot of bricks and mortar restaurants are looking at getting out of the bricks and mortars and getting into e-kitchens mm-hmm. uh, where they're, kitchens, they're getting into yeah. online sales and uh, delivery sales where they don't have these big rents. They can work out of a commercial kitchen. Yeah. And, and then again, you have the, you have the competition with all these implant feeders. Uh, in fact, in San Francisco, they tried to put a law in place outlawing the big companies to put like implant feeding mm-hmm. so that people will frequent the public restaurants right. more. I know for a fact, my son worked at Lincoln, LinkedIn and, their, their food facilities in San Francisco were incredible. It was like going into a huge farmer's market. And you know? free. Yeah. Free. Breakfast it's like lunch, part of the lunch and dinner. Yeah. And that really hurts the, the, the retail local, on the yeah. street restaurant. Yeah. And, and that plus, you know, the millennials like online delivery. You know, mm-hmm. they like to eat at home. And so yeah. a combination of all these factors. So it's hard to answer your question specifically. It really is a function of mm-hmm. how many you know, millennials you have given in an area, mm-hmm. you know, what the rents are, what's affordable housing. There's so many in, interactive. And that's all part of the evaluation. When you're selling a restaurant, I mean, you're thinking about that or, or you're asking the potential buyer, are you thinking about staffing issues? Are you think, I mean, is that part of uh, the conversation? That oh, goes of course. On? Yeah. yeah. And for example, like in San Francisco now, I, I was looking at our statistics. We, we've done 85 deals this year and of which there were 16 in San Francisco. And I, offhand, I can't say whether 16 is higher than, than, than average for San Francisco, but my gut tells me uh, it's probably lower yeah, than normal. Sounds and, lower. And in San Francisco, the typical venue that we are selling is an owner operator uh, operation smaller floor print floor print mm-hmm. probably in the 1500 to 2000 where the owner can basically work the place himself yeah. maybe have some of his family members to deal with the labor problem mm-hmm. so he's got lower rent because it's a smaller square footage he's got uh running it himself with his family and um there's still a viability for that kind of an operator but uh on the other hand, um, the big venues, and we have some of them for sale, are very difficult to sell because high rents, big square footage, a lot of employees, hard to get employees in the city, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's still a lot of competition. You know, there's, yeah. I think this year in the city, probably more restaurants closed than opened. I don't know the mm-hmm. exact statistic, but I would not be surprised. I know that was the case in 2018, and I'm sure it's probably happening in 2019 as well. Yeah. And there's a big, in San Francisco, there is a big retail vacancy. In North Beach alone, there's 20%. 
and overall San Francisco retail vacancy is around 10%, where it's, hmm. which is really unusual. But you go to San Diego and you have a 3% vacancy factor mm -hmm. for retail space. So it varies from area to area. And you can, you can put restaurants in retail space. I mean, well, restaurants are part of retail space. Yes. Occupancy. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, sure. It's a retail yeah. Yeah, facility for sure. Um, like I noticed that you have a lot of listings for Santa Clara and Alameda. Mm -hmm. Are they just, is something happening in those areas that, you know, people are wanting to move away? I don't know them. I know Alameda a little bit because of the flea market. So awesome. Are you talking about you talk, when you say Alameda? You sound you thinking about Alameda I'm just County? Looking at Alameda your County. Northern, you're talking yeah, about county, yeah. not the city of Alameda. Right. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, well, I, I think you have the underlying issues that I discussed earlier, where the you same. have the housing problems, mm -hmm. um, higher rents, not as high necessarily. You know, parts of some parts of Alameda County is necessarily not as high as San Francisco, mm -hmm. uh, and Oakland rents, you know, are are getting up there, but still not in the San Francisco range. And of course, you know, if you go to Contra Costa County, you got, you know, Walnut Creek got high rents there and there's a lot of turnover of restaurants mm -hmm. going on right now in Walnut mm -hmm. Creek. Um, but um, in Santa Clara County, again, you have, you have again, high rents. Mm -hmm. I think the average price, single Is resident. Is that a high end place to live? Well, it's becoming because okay. of all the high tech concentration oh, down it. there. Mm -hmm. And so rents are going through the roof for apartments. For housing, mm. um, downtown San Jose, uh, San Jose itself, I think, has it, their price per house cost is as high or higher than mm. anywhere else in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. yeah. The average price house is like a million, two, mm. million, three. Wow. You know, whereas San Jose was a you know it was a quiet little town mm -hmm. for many years, but it's a center of the high tech industry. The, mm. the airport is is mushrooming, mushrooming, growing, uh, and all this high tech is centered down there. Mm -hmm. I mean, the high tech of the world is in in Santa Clara County and San Mateo yeah. County. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. and, and then you got the implant feeding competition with all those big, you in know. The, with the company. Big yeah, concerns. I just, and I don't, and I don't online sales with all the techies wanting, you know, mm -hmm. online sales. So it's, mm -hmm. they're getting it from all sides. That was something I wanted to ask you, Sandra, because I know that you have had issues with DoorDash. Now, I don't want to get you started again, but. I'm in a good mood today. Okay, good. So. <laughs> I think there's a solution what is for it? you and DoorDash to get along. No, there's not. And I think Steve is going to have to end up helping you find a cloud kitchen. I have a cloud kitchen. Well, you have Sweet D, right? I is have, that no, what I you have the catering kitchen in Sweet D. And this is like a new, I don't know if this is a new thing. I just heard about this the other day, that this is something that people are getting into. It's major. Is, is cloud kitchens because that, that then they can prepare food, not at the actual restaurant that can be delivered, exactly. but that represents the restaurant's overall style and, right. and quality and, and right. all of those And things. it's not disruptive of what their exactly. operations and, and are And there's people that are putting big and, money into this. Yeah. And, and how does that affect, though, restaurant business in general? If more people are having their food delivered as well, opposed to going out there's, to eat. There's, I mean, and I'm sure you can weigh in on this, too, but I think there are there will be people that are going to let their mick their brick and mortar go or turn their brick and mortar into a cloud kitchen of some sort mm -hmm. so they don't have to deal with all the labor and whatever if they have a reasonable rent that would make sense to do just delivery or pickup or you know to go business right. um i think 
that I think there's a lot, a lot of factors in it. And the, the factor that, well, I, I don't know. I mean, are we down in general in the business because more people ordering online at home? Are we down because there's less people coming? Are we down because um, the holidays felt fall really weird this year? Or people are still thinking about the fires or we had two weeks of straight rain? You know, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, the more rain you have, the more people don't want to go out and go buy food. So you bring food in. Um, you know, I think there, I think in the city, a ghost kitchen makes a lot of sense because of volume. It's all about volume, whether you can really make money or not in this business. If you opened a ghost kitchen here and you're trying to accommodate Sonoma, which only has 10,000 people, they're just not all ordering. Right. And I mean, I find it fascinating some of the places where they're opening these big cloud kitchens. And my brother, Ron, was really interested. He's like, I want to do this. Is that you could have a, like as a commissary, you have a head, you know, hub for delivery and the IT of it all. But you have one place that's just going to do like tacos and enchiladas, you know, like their two best items. And then you have another place. All they're going to do is burgers and fries. And so very, these very, very limited menus but stuff that, that share well. things that travel well, yeah. that share all the other resources, even like when you're talking about building those communities where people live as a community, um, we're going to see more and more of those open oh, up. Oh, interesting. Think. So what you're saying is that several different several different would get businesses would together and use the they same space. They share the lease. Right. They have their little area that's theirs. Right. Um, and they put together, you know, you could have, or it's one company doing 10 different concepts in a kitchen and marketing it as 10 different styles right. of food. Right. And... I I think it's a great city thing. It's a great thing where there's a lot of volume. I think it would work in Santa Rosa. I don't know if it would work here yet. Hmm. You know, and how does AB5 deal with that? And AB5 being the law that's going to come out about, um, I think it'll affect DoorDash and, you know, turning um, private contractors, drivers or caterers or whoever into are they a private contractor or are they a employee right and who's picking up those fees you know if i'm a restaurant doing a restaurant and doordash is picking it up uh, do i have to pay that driver because they picked up my food or right. is doordash pay that driver if they become an employee like who's the employee if i have a catering person that works for three different catering companies are they my employee or are they their employee? Right. It's There's a lot of messy stuff right now. With those delivery um, companies, is there a gratuity that's added on when some, you order? Some. Okay. So then, in essence, they are a tipped employee in a way. Well, I mean, gosh, that was a horrible thing. Like, DoorDash was keeping all the tips that were coming through. Oh. They had some big issues, and they've changed a bunch of their policies. Hmm. You know? Do you, do you, are you seeing this more, Steve? Well, I'm seeing a lot of 
restaurants using these kind of delivery services mm-hmm. and they, within they, their open restaurants right mm-hmm. and they pay a big price yeah, know, it for could that. be like thirty yeah. percent. I think in the twenty to thirty percent yeah, range. Yeah, it's it's really a it lot. Is, yeah. And I mean that's something. So you know, Brian's was teasing, but DoorDash like just put our restaurants on their platform. They didn't contact us. They didn't ask us. They put menus up. All we found out because drivers were showing up picking up to go orders <laughs> we didn't even really know they weren't the customer hmm. and they were paying with the doordash credit card hmm. um which is weird because you pay so the customer pays for the order to doordash online hmm. and then when doordash comes to pick up the food at the restaurant they pay you so somewhere between there is where they're making their money. But they just put us on. And it, it, there was no concern about our operations, the space that it takes for us to do to-go orders, um, the qualitative issues about the you know what's yeah. the food going to taste like when it gets there. Yeah. Um, and then they've had this huge backlash of um, now they have to have a seal because people were eating, testing out the food, the drivers, oh. before they got to the house. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. And so now there's, if you order food to go, there's a seal yeah. that shows that your food hasn't been tampered with. Yeah. And honest to God, I was listening to the Eater podcast this morning And it's so crazy that we're talking about this because this blows my mind. Burger King, somebody, they had a delivery service and they were advertising the Impossible Burger. And so there were people that were getting the Impossible Burger delivered to them. There was this one guy, he was getting it like a lot and he was so happy, he was eating less meat and he thought it was so tasty. And so he was in the area of the store of where this Burger King was and he went in there and he went to order the Impossible Burger and they go well we don't have the Impossible Burger and he goes well of course you do I've had it like a dozen times it's been delivered to me oh well that was a mistake we've never had that and blamed it on the tech company like it wasn't DoorDash I think it was Seamless where they did the wrong stuff Mm. now how often could this be happening Right. When you're talking about you know, allergies, allergies or, and uh, dietary, uh, dietary and, restrictions, you right. know, I, I don't think the problems have come up. I mean, it's interesting to see where pizza delivery was and Chinese pickup was yeah. to now it's mainstream. Yeah. It's everything. You haven't seen Whole Foods yet. Deliver. Well, no, no, no. You can get Whole Foods on Instacart or you used to. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the quality of the food that is delivered to a home versus it being consumed in in the restaurant. I have mixed feelings. It depends what the cuisine is. Mm-hmm. I think if it's something that my expectations are, this is food to be delivered. Mm-hmm. Pizza, it probably matches my expectation. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even the Indian food here, I think it travels well. It stays hot. Not the non bread, but yeah. the basic. Food right. stays yeah. good. No, but how about a hamburger, like for example, the, I, the bun I, gets soggy. We don't want to do our burgers yeah. to go. Lettuce and tomato yeah, gets wilted. We don't, yeah, we don't. I mean, I've I've, I've gone inferior. to In and Out Burger and brought it home for my daughter and wife, and it's not good by the it's time I good. get it home. And I'm 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 the most immediate. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm right. getting it directly from the person that's handing it to me and taking it directly yeah. to yeah, my you house. You have to like, like eat it in your car I, before I, you get home. I can't imagine, and I just don't understand. How, I mean. 
it reminds me of that old Saturday Night Live skit where it's a it's a commercial for the change bank and the, and the the person comes in and says that's all we do is change you come in with a 50 we'll give you two 20s and a 10 <laughs> we'll give you seven fives and 15 ones we'll even give you a 25 twos and they said the guy says I don't understand all you do is make change how do you make money and he says simple volume <laughs> I don't understand who's making money. There's just, it doesn't seem on like the delivery, on the delivery right. of this food. No, I don't, I don't think so either. Certainly not in a suburban area. I mean, you're talking about the gas to get you there, paying that employee. Yeah, the, the IT. The amount of time it takes for them to pick up at Chipotle and take it to my house. It seems like should, it, at least $20 should be added onto that order. Oh, it is. You don't think there's like a good $15, $20 added to your I don't know. Chipotle never, burrito? Because yeah. you don't pay the bills. Well, I've never ordered from DoorDash. <laughs> I like to go get my food. I mean, I know that if I... And I, I've tried them all because I was really curious. So I tried most of them in town. And I personally, as a consumer, I've never had a problem... Well, my, the last one when my mom was visiting, we ordered from Mary's. Now, Mary's, they've had to change from an in-house driver to DoorDash. Wait, so so Mary, so a, so a, you're saying a restaurant that normally restaurant did delivery that service had on delivery, their own? They did it themselves. They could do their quality control. They had employees that knew the food. They can't find drivers. Hmm. They can't find drivers wow. anymore. So okay. they had to switch. They, so they started with DoorDash. Now, I find their situation a little more interesting in that DoorDash is really, they've built out something that is seamless with their website. You know, it doesn't immediately look like it's a DoorDash scenario. Like if you go to Mary's website versus DoorDash on their website. Hi. <laughs> Forgot about that. Um, but... The only thing I had is the last time my mom and I ordered Mary's, the driver got to the door and dropped the spaghetti and meatball all over my front porch, like literally (laughs) spaghetti everywhere. And so the poor guy, I mean, he was like, you know, a mess. But I think we ordered a pizza, spaghetti and meatball and a small salad. And I think it was like 50 bucks. And that's with the delivery fee and the Mm. tip. And it's crazy. Well, and then all the transaction fees, because what you're saying is that people are calling. So then they're paying for that transaction for them. Then then the company is paying a transaction fee with the Mm -hmm. restaurant. And then the restaurant is paying a transaction. Exactly. So at the end of the day, the credit card companies are making a ton of money. And there's no experience. I mean, you know, when you get food dropped off. Now, granted, of course, you have your experience of your home. But I don't think restaurants are built for you to take the food home and have a different experience. Like I put a lot of time in creating an environment and an ambiance that I want to be part of the experience. You don't get that. Yeah, sure. Well, then that reminds me of room service. You know, I, I do work at a hotel that does a fair amount of room service business. Do you ever have to take the orders to the rooms? I, you know, when we had soufflés and people would come in and sometimes you would forget to fire the souffle. Oh, and they were and, like, brought it back And in so they room. said, you know, can you just send it to our room? And if you were the one that forgot to fire the souffle, sometimes you, you had to bite the Do they the bullet answer and the door in their bathrobes? Uh, it depended on the situation. You know, with me, mostly, yeah. They said, <laughs> 
<laughs> they're no, waiting for you. <laughs> no, but but the but I see the food come up, and then normally I'm taking it directly to a table. When I see the food come up, and then go with a little dome on it, and then go sit at room yeah. service and put it together on the tray, and then then I know you know how expansive this property is. So by the time they're walking it, it's out in the cold. I'm thinking right. by the time French yeah. fries get there, can they really be worth the no. fifteen dollars? No, I and, don't. And the, I know the, the twenty dollar tip that you're paying. <laughs> But do you see some of these trends as something that is really going to decrease your business? Like, do you get concerned about some of this stuff for the livelihood of your business? Um, no, I think, you know, the reality is that people have to eat. So there, there will always be uh, some form of uh, bricks and mortar type mm-hmm. of food establishment for us to deal with on mm-hmm. a transactional basis for you know, say a sale or mm-hmm. to purchase. So I, I, I don't see. Well, actually your business could be going up because more people are going out of business. So you have more properties to sell. That could be. And, and again, you know, different configurations where, you know, restaurants are selling a higher percentage of takeout business or delivery service. And that's sort of becoming a norm as part of the mix. And Mm -hmm. so when somebody buys a going concern business, they're buying it with the understanding that their mix is going to probably stay, you know, in a similar right fashion. Yeah. Similar fashion or may, you know, maybe the the takeout business may even expand. It's hard to say, but what you've brought up is that the costs is, is is a big concern. It may may be pricing out some of this takeout delivery business because Mm -hmm. of the high costs. And liability insurance for the drivers, mm-hmm. you know, and the... But I think that's where the ghost kitchens are becoming more favorable because it's not competing with your open business. Like right. if you have a closed door kitchen that you share with 10 other vendors or with yourself, with your pretend 10 other vendors... You know, you're lowering a lot of your expenses. You don't need as much labor. You just, you know, maybe you have your own driver. I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting, though. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Do you see a trend in the types of restaurants you're selling more? Or like, not actually, that's not my question. People that want to buy, do you feel like there's a trend on the direction that people want to go when they're buying? Like, do you see Mexican food being really hot? Or vegan, do you see, vegetarian. Or vegan and vegetarian. Yeah. Are people like, oh, I'm going to do a vegan restaurant here? Is there any? It it, it really varies, you know, mm-hmm. throughout the state. The uh, location. I, I, yeah, I, I can't really, you know, quantify right. that that response mm-hmm. to exactly. Uh Again, a lot of people have their own mousetrap, their own right. individual oh, well, everybody concept. Everybody thinks they can do it better right. than the last For person. Sure. And I certainly think there's a trend to uh, a casual dining, more self-service type where you don't need to mm-hmm. you know, have a food Kiosk server to deliver the and, food. You yeah. go and order the food and then pick it. You know, they, deli- mm-hmm. uh, they deliver it to your table or you pick it up. They call mm-hmm. your, your, you know, you get one of these little devices that, that goes off when yeah, your right. order's right. ready, you know. Right. Yeah. And uh, so there is a trend to try to try to decrease labor in that regard on site mm-hmm. um but it's you know people have to eat so it's right it's it's open It'll as far as what, what's going to be in demand and, mm-hmm. and what's going to be the next greatest trend i know we go through yeah. this frozen yogurt thing every few years yeah. where yeah. it's in well, demand and then it's i not. mean <laughs> you know and and going into 2020 i mean when you think about what 
the trends may be. I mean, we know vegan and vegetarian and plant-based, plant-based and impossible yeah, burgers sure. and fake food and, you know, uh, cashew cheese and nut cheese. And that whole segment is huge. Um, I talked to somebody today. I said, I don't think I'll be at the fancy food show this year. Um, she's like, yeah, I heard that the um, attendance is just getting less and less. But the the health the health show, I mean, the um, natural food show down mm-hmm. in L.A. in Anaheim is blowing up. Yeah. And so it's interesting. We do know that this is like mainstream. This is changing. Um, juicing. I think it went from yo- frozen yogurt to juicing to juice bars. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to like think like what. And I do think self-service and and a lot of that stuff is going to be a big trend. I don't, I don't know. You know, regional is always going to be regional, especially in our areas where, you know, we do have beautiful farms and, you know, people really committed to growing delicious food. Um, I think we'll always have that. But with everything that's happening in the restaurant business right now, the bureaucratic rules and laws and changes. So I'm trying to figure out where we're putting our lactation room. Oh. New law. Businesses have to have a lactation room. Now, are you talking about for your guests or for employees? Employees. Okay. Hmm. Um, Yeah. There's some interesting laws that are happening that, you know, when you signed up to have a business... It was nowhere on your radar. Right. You didn't plan to have an extra closet, you know, that you could do something else in. Right. You know, like space and the rent so expensive, every single square footage in a restaurant, you know, your division, your percentage of what is guest space, you know, guest seating versus back of the house. I mean, our kitchen is so small. Well, I personally have experience <laughs> yes, you with, have. with this with at yeah. the Girl in the Fish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, where where the manager's office became that designated area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that I mean And we had we, three of us that basically were kicked out of our office for right. however long it took. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean you can't take times. a bathroom over from guests for No, for and you're not and you're not allowed to use an employment you're not allowed to use the employee bathroom. Not that I would want to use the one that we have. Right. But that's a rule. And you have to have a sink and you that's like really accessible, a refrigerator. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. And now another law that was just passed is um you can bring your own to-go containers into a restaurant if you're having food to go and have them put them in your container. Now, what if you bring in a container and you didn't know it, it, like your, your, your friend knocked the lye bottle or the Lysol bottle or whatever, and it got some chemical in it or whatever. And you don't know this, you don't smell it, you don't see it, it's not wet, whatever. And you go to a restaurant and they put their food in it. And then the next day they're in the hospital and they said, well, yeah, I got the food from blah, blah, blah. Where is that liability? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, it's scary. Well, this, this seems to be all sort of new world problems. New world problems. And I'm not talking about upper 
upper crust. I'm talking about what are they doing in France? I'm sure that there is a server in France that has been able to use a breast pump or feed her child. And there isn't a law that designates exactly. a specific area because over a thousand or 2000 years, maybe they've figured this out. Right. Whereas we decide everything is litigation needs a new law and, and needs so a new rule one person and... felt slighted that they didn't have a space to go yeah. to go pump. And so then now all the rest of us have to yeah, deal fix with our it. restaurants. Right. Yeah. yeah. The biggest issues we've, we're finding in selling restaurants is uh, obviously ADA, American Disabilities Act, sure. retrofitting. Because as soon as you buy, it's no longer grandfathered in. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, it, you you can't you can't count on grandfathering because right. if somebody comes in a wheelchair and they right. can't be serviced, they, they can sue. Yeah. So uh, ADA is, is utmost importance, and of course, change of ownership for health inspections is a big issue. If you're changing mm -hmm. ownership, uh, you, you have oh, yeah. you have all to, new coat. The seller ha is responsible unless it's an as-is sale. Uh, but if it's a going concern sale. Uh, the, the oh. buyer's going to want to make sure it, it in most cases they can't get a business license unless they get a change of ownership health inspection signed off on so in, in that case the seller has to you know make sure there's smooth washable services on all floors walls and ceilings they have to have the, the number of mop sink you know, mop sink yep. floor sinks um, they have to have uh, you know hand sinks they have to totally retrofit you know the restaurant to, to, to pass the current change of ownership requirements so th those are the two biggest issues we're seeing. But are you saying that the going concern method, if I'm just selling this to you and you're going to continue what I've been doing, nothing will change? No, uh, if, if it still could, you still they're going to have to upgrade. Okay, the seller's going to have thought. upgrade to the change of ownership yeah. requirements. Yeah, there's just they're going to come no in way, and look at right? it. Yeah. As a, as yeah, a, and and that's interesting too because we have first rate refusal on the hotel, where the girl in the fig is, and for years I've wanted that property like so much. I think it would be incredible for us, and just the last six months I've been, yikes, how much code is that gonna? Oh need? yeah, for sure. You know, yeah, and especially like what I want to do with it. I'm right. like, I don't know that I'll ever make money back before I die. Right, right, right. Yeah. but know? it'll be very cute though. It would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but well, was it you telling me about the food truck where you had to have yes. the ability for someone in a wheelchair to do a 360 yes. basically in the kitchen? But then we there had was to change our equipment in the kitchen because they couldn't in the food truck in the food truck because yeah. the wheelchair couldn't go all the way around. Wow. But they didn't make <laughs> us have a ramp. <laughs> Wow. So you couldn't get in it, the truck, yeah. to do that. Yeah. Wow. Or I don't, I don't know, but well, I'm hoping be, no one. I hope year. no one listens <laughs> I to know, this because I'm going to be getting one. a ramp soon. <laughs> yeah. Um, what? So are there ever restaurants that when people come to sell and you're like, I am not touching this? Uh, quite a few times. Quite a few. Yes. And yeah. what would those things? Why? What? What are some of the reasons? The reasons are uh, they have a very difficult landlord oh. with a very onerous lease, mm -hmm. and the landlord's not going to come off his onerous position, mm -hmm. and uh, that that's one of the major issues. Uh, the other is uh, the seller is totally unreasonable in terms of his pricing mm -hmm. of the restaurant. So it's basically pricing and lease, but I'd say lease is probably number one mm -hmm. because you know they pay the price once, but the lease they have to deal with every thirty days. They have to pay the rent, right? And uh, and it's 
you know, people want, you know, minimally five years with the five multiple five year options and they want the option rent the first year of the option rent to be so to spelled out right. so it's not at the whims of free market uh, right. fair exactly. market rent because yeah. that could put people out of business because right rents away. could go up to yeah. such a level on a mm-hmm. renewal that this, the operator can't afford to be there anymore right. so it's important they nail down the rent and the mm-hmm. option periods at a reasonable yeah, we level we have one of those coming next year oh do you mm-hmm. and you're, you have a, an option at fair market rent Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so what's the mechanism that is that is used mm, if, CPI. If, if, the, if, the land, if the if the landlord and the landlord and the tenant cannot agree? Um, I think we we consumer price index, but um, I mean, but you, also looking at our town. I mean, we have a very good relationship, so I'm not really freaking out about yeah, it. Yeah. But um, you have the same land. You've had the same, same landlord, landlord the whole time. So he has emp- empathy for you. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think they yeah. want us to be there. Sure. And um, well, landmark. there's a lot of places that are empty, you know, and when places are empty, the rents, the square footage goes down a little bit. Yeah. So I think it's very difficult to find comps right now mm-hmm. in Sonoma for restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's not that much changing though. We do have a bit changing this year in that next six months, we're going to see some change. Um, but, but it is, it's a scary thing. You could have something where, you know, um, it could double triple, you know, and you'd be like, okay, bye-bye, gotta go. And then you can't because you're have to do like a six month thing (laughs) and then, yeah. 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 You just can't yeah. get up and it's go. Just, You've got you got all can't, your equipment. You, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in. we have an interesting situation, but, um, yeah. yeah. I, and what about cleanliness? Like, have you ever walked into a place and they just, it's just so disgusting that you're like, I'm not touching this. There are situations that have occurred like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, or, or I tell them, you know, if you want me to be involved in the sales, you've got to clean this place up. Yeah. It's got to present well. Yeah. You know? People, a lot of people don't have any imagination when they look at a place. So, right. you know, the deferred maintenance needs right. to be taken mm-hmm. care of. You know, the yeah. health standards need to be mm-hmm. taken care of. In fact, we just recently closed escrow on a deal and uh, the seller, for some reason, decided not to clean the kitchen when mm-hmm. he left. Oh, lovely. And so the, the, the buyer had, you know, signed off on the deal with the with the understanding that the, the seller was going to, you know, clean the kitchen before mm-hmm. they took over the next day. And lo and behold, they walk in and the old grease is still in the, in the fryer, you know, all kinds of schmutz on the floor mm-hmm. and on the counters and the refrigeration. So I, you know, I called up the seller and I said, listen, unless you want to have some legal action against you, this place has to be brooms swept mm-hmm. clean. You know, everything's got to be clean. Mm-hmm. And he said, all right. So he took care of it. But yeah, that, that is certainly a concern. Sanitation. For sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, I think in general, what, there's a couple things that I take away from this show. One of them is that the restaurant business is a challenging business. Still. Still. Even from Be- when you were a very more, young, young man. It's becoming more challenging, yeah. mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. because of the labor situation. Yeah. Labor the and occupant, just, just Occupancy costs, the, the amount the of competition, and the, the loss. And the loss. Because if you're a, a good company, I think you can attract employees. I, I really do. I think there are people that want to be taken care of in a job. They're willing to drive for a job. They're willing to do it. So I think you can get employees if you're good, good to them. And, and, and if you're successful, I know people that I know people right now that 
still would love to come work at the girl in the fig that are working at other places that still talk about, Oh, maybe I could go work at the fig. And, and it's because number one, because of the environment, but also because they know they're going to make money. Right. I mean, right. we're focused on I mean, that's doing a, that's everything important. we can to yeah. have our staff make money. Right. I think that's very important. You know, but like when you hit things like minimum wage changes or, you know, wacky laws coming in or, you know, uh, workers comp insurance and how those things affect things in your different categories and on and on and on. It's just like, and we know, so when people say, what should I expect my profit margin to be at the end of the year? What percentage? Well, it's certainly a lot less than it used to be. Right. Because well, in order to maintain price value, to you gotta you gotta keep your pricing reasonable. Right. You can't offset all your no. increased costs. No. So your margins are getting slammed. Right. So and was it did it used to be six percent or about? Like if you could get six. It, it, it really six depended to 10, on, on the volume right. on okay. the volume because yeah. incremental profit goes up, mm-hmm. you know, exponentially right. with right. with increased volume because you're volume, volume, volume. Yeah. volume so volume. Uh, you know, I would say uh, the, the, uh, the optimum profit today, I would say for a place that's well run, that's mm-hmm. doing a reasonable volume should be in the 10 to 12 percent pre-tax mm-hmm. range. That's that's what they're shooting for. Now, in some cases, if it's really high volume and it's well run mm-hmm. with a lot of controls in place, it could be in the 15 to 20 percent range. But mm-hmm. those are far and few between. And then also a lot of it has to do with the alcohol to food mix right. because, exactly. you know, cost of goods on. Pouring costs, you know, if it's a high, mm-hmm. high, hard liquor operation, mm-hmm. could be running in the low twenties or less, right. versus food costs running closer in the thirties. So you got right. a ten percent spread there. So that's exactly. as a big impact on the bottom line. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a high vo- ratio of alcohol to food, that's going to definitely help. help the bottom mm-hmm. line dramatically. And for that's why sure. there's such a demand for buying uh, alcohol-only operations. You know, right. bars sell really well. Right. Know, or, or restaurants that do a high volume of alcohol, like sports bars, mm-hmm. where doing maybe 60%, 60 or more of alcohol sales to mm-hmm. food, they're much more profitable. Um, you know what we're looking for? Well, a few things, but if we could find an event space in town, I would be so happy. Just FYI. Well, and what do you mean by an event space exactly? Yeah. How many like another pop-up space where I could do a party for 150. But somewhere more centrally located somewhere, to the square. But it has square. to be close to us. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's got to be somewhere in Sonoma. Right. I, I don't know of any. I mean, I no, look all the time. You know the, the market well. So yeah. It's... I mean, I'm always looking, but it's like, I don't feel like there's enough venues. I mean, Napa's worse because the wineries, you can't do weddings. And I think there's two wineries you can do a wedding in, mm. but it would, you know, Sweet D can be booked all the time. Um, and it's limited to how many people, but I know if we had a venue, we could fill it certainly every weekend. Sort of like a veterans building or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I'd love to have that building and redo that. Yeah. Can you work out a deal with a local hotel? I tried. Um, they no, because have... they they're making their own money. Oh, They've got yeah. their own kitchens yeah. and, you know, some are better equipped and, yeah. And there's some community hubs, um, but, yeah, they're not open to that. 
Well, I have an idea. I don't know where they hold all these meetings that they decide that they're going to raise the the, <laughs> the the wage for your for it's the uh, tipped friendly, employees. It's not a friendly I, place. Wherever they're holding those meetings, maybe should be turned into an event space so that yeah. we can recoup some it, of this it's, cash. It's actually it's it's a strike unit, <laughs> or it should be. Well, I think this was really interesting. Do you? I mean, did we cover most of the, you know, like or do you have any advice for people looking to either buy or sell? Okay. I think the best way to go about that is um, if you look at our website, restaurantrealty.com, uh, you'll see the different restaurants uh, and bar and uh, real estate opportunities that we have available. Uh, we also have a number of articles in our restaurant wrap section, which cover a lot of the basic principles for buying and selling, which may be helpful. I have a book called Restaurant Dealmaker, uh, which could be bought on Amazon, uh, which which uh, could be helpful, which I'm going to give you both a copy. i got to go to my car and get another copy Excellent. for you. Um, and um, again, if you have questions about, you know, how to buy or sell a restaurant, you know, welcome to uh, to help you. Uh, you know, my email address is steve at restaurantrealty.com. So I'd be happy to uh, work with anyone that has got questions, uh, and uh, I would be happy to give you answers or, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, yeah. A couple of things for me. Number one, thank you for um, <clears throat> some good childhood memories at Zim's. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what you ate? I'm sure it was burgers. You know, this is this is when I'm five, six, seven, eight. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about you know as a kid but it's, it's just funny i mean it's one of the places that you drove by all the time right on sir francis Street. Mm -hmm. um but the other it's thing it's a catchy name too it, it is yeah um but the other thing i took away from this show is that successful people find ways to to be successful when there are challenges that arose so from you and the strike um, um in the restaurants and you had the employee strike you sort of pivoted and found a different direction and that's what uh, uh, you do the same thing as well. A restaurant doesn't um, doesn't yeah, doesn't pan going. out. You yeah. just come up with a new idea and you go for it. Yeah. I mean, I do think I've closed more than I've opened at this point. Yeah. You know, which is, I don't know. I can look at it a few different ways. <laughs> <laughs> Try and look at it the good way. But but I think that's just a good message for people out there. That, yeah, that, it's I mean, hard. It's it, a hard it, business. And you people know, don't just get into something and then be soul yeah. into it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 And it's food. And, and honestly, yeah, people have to eat. But in a restaurant environment, I mean, why do people come into like a mid to a high range restaurant? They want to feel good. They want to be taken care of. They want to, whether it's for memory, for hunger, for just their soul, um, you know, they just want to be treated nice. Yeah. Not, it's not rocket science. Yeah. That part of it anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was super cool. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed well, this. Well, thanks for having yeah. me. I enjoyed no, it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so pleasure. much. And we'll post all of your contact information um, on the bikeozon.com uh, com website as well as Radio Misfits uh, for the intro for the show. Great, thank uh, so you. So that people can get a hold of you. No, thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, happy New Year to everyone. Yeah, Happy New Year, Healthy everyone. Healthy and happy one. And uh, I hope you're still eating some latkes, <laughs> some, some good <laughs> brisket. Fruit. That's right. Oh, um, are you going to have crab on New Year's Day? 
Is, do, is, do you have a crab tradition? Yes, but it's Christmas Eve. Oh, on Christmas Eve? Christmas what Eve. What time are we, come, are we doing that we, at your house? <laughs> that's already done. <laughs> I was working. Oh, what, Christmas Eve is over. Right. I got to pick the crabs up. Uh, oh. at Oliver's where there was a specific line that was about a mile long oh, um, for the crabs and a lot of um, very um, you know some people were in the crab line thinking they were in line to get stuff at the butcher oh. and so then by the time they got up there and waited 15 minutes and then they said no this is the crab only line there was a a lot of and this is this is Christmas Eve morning that Maria, Maria Maria said I need you to do something for me you're not gonna like it but I really need you mm-hmm. to do it. I love um, it. So I picked up crab, and then I, I got to eat it the next Later. day. And, and we have the little Reminds butter warmers. Reminds me to order. I should order some today. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. No, I we love have it. the little butter yeah. warmers, and we did cocktail mm. sauce, so it was very good. Yeah. Yeah. Very fun. And 2020. 2020. Here yeah. we come. Yeah, we were joking the other day, you know, the the glasses that everyone wears on New Year's Eve, mm-hmm. that it's been a little challenging <laughs> some of these years to, to get the eye holes. <laughs> 2017 <laughs> specifically was a little challenging, you know? No, to, I don't even you, know what you're talking about. The glasses about. where it says 2017. I've you know, never everyone seen wears, those. Oh, you've never seen those no. glasses. Oh, but you mean 2020. So 2020 is, is, is oh, just for the swag, um, the swag, the swag companies out there. Yeah. This is a, a bonanza. Yeah, <laughs> 2020. For... <laughs> right. Oh boy. All right. Well, please uh, go to the You can um, uh, go to our website, look at past episodes, or you can go directly to thebikegoeson.com and not only see um, and download some of the episodes, but see some of the content that we've got there. I hope that we will see you at some of the dinners that we're doing at Sweet D in January. I know they're going to be fun. It looks like you are committing Saul to playing guitar. Saul is going to play. um, And also he's doing some kind of a guitar decade thing. I can't wait. Like guitar over the decade and teaching us something. So I'm really excited. So I hope more people sign up so that dinner happens. I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. It's all from Cafe La Haye. Classically trained Classically uh, guitarist. Guitarist. Yeah. yeah, it's very cool. And maybe we can make him come and up with the bike goes on spot. He may buy a new guitar just for this night. That's a little crazy. Yeah, I know. But, <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Yeah. All right. Steve, thank you so much for thank coming. Thank you for having yeah. me. Awesome. Sandra, as always, good to see you. You too, Donna. And thanks for listening. Give us a, um, a nice rating. Give and, us a nine-star uh, review. Drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. Bye.